one of the first Amazon reviews that we got was, and Amazon was very new in 1999, was, you know, what a bunch of lawyers know about human beings, which, okay, fair enough. But I think that one of the things that at least we brought that might be helpful to many people is really disciplined and organized thinking because lawyers learn how to parse issues, separate them, create three-pronged tests, um, and think and organize writing clearly, or at least that's the aspiration for us. And so the Difficult Conversations book tends to find a really um, easy or comfortable audience with people who are really smart and really analytical folks in finance, medicine, engineering, etc., say like, oh, this isn't just a big mess of touchy-feely stuff. This is something that I can actually track and understand and put on a prep sheet and a spreadsheet and get ready for the conversation. This is the Visible Voices podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about Ultrasound Gel podcast. Hi, this is Mike Pratz from the Ultrasound Gel podcast. GEL stands for Gathering Evidence from the Literature. In each episode, we closely examine the latest research in the field of point-of-care ultrasound. Our goal is to make this information easily digestible for clinicians so that we can all use this valuable modality safely to help our patients. Hi, listeners. Thank you so much for joining. Today, I'm in conversation with Sheila Heen. Sheila and I first met way before she realized we first met. I read one of her books for which she's well-known entitled Difficult Conversations, How to Discuss What Matters Most. Sheila and I then met over um, a webinar. The name of the webinar is the Collective Eye Forecast Series. Uh, A good friend from college, Heidi Messer, she and her company started a series during the pandemic. These were informational webinars, and Sheila was invited to be a subject matter expert speaking about leadership, speaking about negotiation during the webinar. I attended the webinar and I said to myself, self, it would be amazing to sit with Sheila in conversation for the podcast. Now, a little bit about Sheila. She's been with the Harvard Negotiation Project for over 20 years. At Harvard Law School, she teaches negotiation and difficult conversations, not only at the law school, also in Harvard's executive education programs. She's the CEO of Triad Consulting. With Triad Consulting, she and her team specialize in working with executive teams on issues where there is strong disagreement and where emotions run high. As preparation for the conversation, I reread Difficult Conversations. By the way, she and her co-authors are now updating to a third edition. I also read her second book, Thanks for the Feedback, The Science and Art of Receiving Feedback, Even When It's Off-Base, Unfair, Poorly Delivered, and Frankly, You're Not in the Mood. Let's get to the conversation where Sheila and I are discussing, well, Sheila and her work. Uh, Sheila, thanks so much for standing with me in conversation. Oh my gosh, it is such a pleasure. (laughs) Okay, um, where should we begin? Oh boy, where do you begin when the whole world feels like it's about the difficult conversations and feedback in your life? I don't know, where do you want to start? Well, I'd like to frame today's conversation, because I'd like to do a deep dive into both of your oeuvres, your masterpieces, (laughs) not in a particular order and in a fluid way, because I think they complement each other. And I guess, you know, when people say, which should I read first? What do you respond? Thank you for reading any, any of them, either of them. Um, 
But on a more serious note, it probably has to do with like what's live for you right now in your life. And so all not just feedback and difficult conversations, but also negotiation. So is it that you're in the middle of a negotiation where you feel stuck and you don't see a way out? Um, okay, well, then maybe you should start with getting TS and the negotiation stuff. Um, is it that you're in a high stakes, emotional, frustrating, intense relationship that feels like it's gone wrong? Maybe difficult conversations. But if you have feedback for the other person and they seem to think you're the problem, then maybe you're starting with the feedback book. I think any of them are doors to walk through. And your first negotiation, though, is with yourself. The first one and maybe the last one, right? I mean, I think that's been one of the things that has been most surprising to me over the course of the last few decades, which is that at least I have not gotten to the place where I figured myself out. And negotiating with myself about, you know, any of the particular situations I'm in over time, but also, what do I think about that now? Because our sense of ourselves at least for me, has changed over time. And the things about myself that are challenging, a few of them are the same. I've made no progress whatsoever. Um, But others are like, oh, this is something about me that I haven't really come to terms with. And so I think that that's the journey. You know, or, or you're at a different stage of your life, right? So I have young kids, now I have teenagers, now I have kids who are out in the world, and what's next for me in my career, et cetera, all of that. The name of the podcast is The Visible Voices. And so I'd like to ask, when did you first realize you had a voice? And when did you start using that voice? Ooh, that is a super live conversation for me right now. Because I'm, I'm um, co-teaching this reading group um, with Rebecca Subar, who wrote a fabulous book called When to Talk and When to Fight. And Rebecca talks about the ways in which our life experiences, for many of us, have biased us in one direction or the other. To either be a talker or to be a little cynical about whether talk is really going to make a difference on the things that matter most to us. And so that fight, and by that she doesn't mean arguing. Arguing would still be talking. But unilateral action, protest, strike, etc., is our go-to method. And so it's got me reflecting on the ways in which being the eldest child in a family of three girls and having parents who, you know, if we disagreed, I would be asked to write an essay about how I should be punished, (laughs) in which I could argue that I should not be punished at all. Um, and, and, you know, negotiating with my father about earning the money to get a horse and going to a small liberal arts college where I somehow persuaded the president to let us put on the first student run conference. I think that I learned very early that I had a sense of agency, that it's not that I could persuade everybody to do things my way, but they would at least listen and consider what I had to say. And then I spent my career thinking about how to up influence and have better conversations. So of course, I have a total bias toward talking. And the unilateral action fighting thing makes me anxious. And so I'm doing a lot of thinking about that because it's leaving out a whole side of influencing, particularly influencing 
systems change. The audience is now intrigued about your childhood, and <laughs> uh oh, <laughs> as am I. Um, I have a few little notes, as uh, you know, and as the audience know by, knows by now. I do a bit of a deep dive in those uh, with whom I have conversation on the visible voices. So I'll just name some one words, and you can respond to them. So we have Iowa, we have Nebraska, we have father as lawyer, shy, four H horse riding, and two sisters, and faith. I can see that you you and the FBI have been interviewing some witnesses. <laughs> um, yeah, and also um, my husband teaches negotiation, and my youngest sister teaches negotiation with us. My middle sister is a... Um, a doctor. doctor. My mother was an OR nurse. And, and so we only really have two professions in my family. Um, I, th- I think that the things that you are naming played a huge role in shaping my perspective on the world. And they also name some of the limits of my exposure in the world. So that when I... <laughs> Oh, how, how honest are we going to be here? So when, when I was in high school, I, my first big boyfriend, um, during my sophomore year of high school, his family moved away and we spent the next year trying to stay together and, you know, stretching the phone cord under the door, um, for long conversations and big phone bills. And when we finally broke up, I wanted to get away. I felt I didn't want to spend the next summer at home with all the things that would remind me of him in all of the teenage drama angst um, that goes with your first big breakup. And so I had taken the PSAT and what landed in the mailbox was a summer school catalog for Harvard Summer School. So I was like, that's it. I'm out of here. And um, I came to Harvard Summer School in 1985 between my junior and senior years of high school. And I suddenly walked into a world that I had never seen before. And kids who actually knew what was going on. And when I went back to Nebraska and walked in my guidance counselor's office and said, I think I need to sign up to take the SAT, she said, you don't need to take the SAT, honey. You know, you're, you're gonna go to the university. And the university is a wonderful place to go, but I had the bug to get out, right, and see more of the world. And so um, I think I started to see the limitations of the world I was in, not because my parents ever wanted there to be limitations, but of course, you see the world that you have access to. Um, And so I think that itch to meet people who were different and to um, I still like to travel. And one of the, the things I love about helping people with their hardest conversations is that you tend to have an excuse to have the conversations that matter. So I can meet someone for the first time and what we're talking about are the things that matter most to them and we get to know each other really quickly. And that is an incredible privilege um, to be invited into people's lives in that way. Yeah. Before we started recording, I noted to you that in reviewing some of your conversations, some of the podcasts, that... um, 
there's discussion on your book, Difficult Conversations, or on Thank You for the Feedback, but immediately people jump in wanting to reveal everything to you because, and this circles back to how you started, I think audience is like, wait a minute, she's on her own journey still? Like what, she's discovering herself or she hasn't worked everything out because you wrote these books with your co-authors and I think the thought is you must have figured it all out. Mm. And then I keep losing the cheat sheet apparently. <laughs> I think that that's right. I mean, I maybe there was a time in my life where I thought I would graduate out of difficult conversations, um, but it ha- at least hasn't happened yet. And and some people react to that and say like, well, then what hope is there for me? Like you think about this stuff and teach this stuff and try to live in congruence with what you teach every day. If you're still struggling, what hope is there? And I might flip it and just say like everything, every relationship, if it's an honest relationship is going to have things you disagree about different preferences, you're going to bring different lenses to it. And your own lenses are changing over time. Um, And so that's actually a beautiful thing. If you can stay in conversation with each other through the course of your lives, you know, that's, that's what makes relationships worth having. And I think to your point, we're always in conversation with ourselves. And if we're not, then that's where we need to start. I think that that is right about ourselves. And then maybe I'll add something that I've learned from my friend Ann Garita, who's a, a Catholic theologian. And she really feels like in terms of, of spiritual growth or growth in understanding ourselves and what is divine, um, that that lives between us. And so it's not only that I'm having a conversation with myself, I'm also in conversation with all the people in my life and how I handle the challenges from those people Um, and the conflicts between us and the stupid things and apologies that I owe. Um, And and what do I make about myself in all of that um, in terms of guilt or shame or regret for choices or or lack of good choices? Um, That that is where we actually have the traction to grow. So I'd brought up faith and you just brought up a Catholic theologian. One of the podcasts... I listened to, um, it was a Christian-based, Christian-faith podcast, and I am wondering where your faith plays a role in your work, and second part is, you know, one of the negotiations uh, with which you've participated, which you've led, has been with theologians, and I'm wondering, was your faith and your commitment to religion questioned first before they accepted you in to be the one to lead the negotiation? Oh, that's such a great question. I thought that when I went to work with Catholic theologians or when I've worked with um, Jewish groups, et cetera, I thought that it might be questioned as someone who grew up Protestant. In fact, I think I found that it was an advantage because they did not care where I stood on these things. I was not relevant. My view was not relevant. And I didn't even necessarily have a view. I, I had to learn how to, you know, spell liturgy and things, because it's just not the terminology that, that is used um, in Protestantism. And so I actually think it was an advantage. One of the other things that I've been thinking about a lot is that, um, so my dad uh, is a lawyer, as you mentioned, and 
when I was a teenager, he left his firm and went on his own. And he did that in part because of conflicts inside the firm, where he disagreed with the decisions they were making about raising rates and that sort of thing. And when I've asked him, and he's been a solo practitioner since then, so since I was 16 years old, and I asked him recently whether he had any regrets. And he said, no regrets. Um, The meetings are short, and they're usually unanimous. And I think I inherited from him a mistrust of organizations. And what I've been noticing in the last 10 years or so with the polarization that we've all been experiencing in the U.S. anyway, that the role that many Christian organizations have played has left me queasy. And so my own sense of what does it mean to have faith, what does it mean to walk in that faith in a way that feels consistent but open, um, means I've really wrestled with whether there's an organization that I feel feel just humanity when we get together we don't always do so well and so I think that's a that's a challenging question that I've been wrestling with for the past few years yeah so they've never asked it hasn't mattered it hasn't mattered it it well maybe they secretly worried about it and they sometimes had to explain things to me in terms of whether I was getting why this was important to them But actually, it can be helpful to have somebody who doesn't always understand because I could ask the dumb questions that would get them elaborating on why it was so important to them individually, which was helpful as they talked with each other. A lot of what you do, be it teaching, um, be it having difficult conversations, teaching about difficult conversations or feedback, one of the basement level criteria strikes me is psychological safety. What are your thoughts on psychological safety? So I'm curious about your experiences with psychological safety, because I think everybody says we need to have it. So feel safe. (laughs) And I'm, I'm super curious about your experience with it, because it's not that I would disagree with that. But the rub is, well, then what does that mean in practice? What's your experience with it? Going back to the fluidity of the books and how they actually complement each other. And I agree. I don't think it matters in which order you read, when you read, and when you go back to, because they're both go back to a bull. Both require psychological safety. And what I've seen, and one of my reasons for outreaching to you is I think that what happens in your industry is very similar to what happens in my industry, be it law, be it medicine. When I speak with my friends in education, when I speak with my friends who are in investment banking, uh, advertising. So I do think psychological safety is required to be able to have difficult conversations, to be able to be receptive to feedback. And we can go into the specifics of what's required, what the criteria, what kind of conversation is this, but people that are trying to manage people, people in leadership positions, people who aspire to be leaders, I think really need to sit at the table, digest psychological safety and what it means for them and how they can provide that for other people. And I also suspect that the leaders can't provide it for other people. And what I mean by that is not that they 
should not be sitting at the table digesting and thinking deeply about how to do it, but they're going to need the help of the team. In other words, I think that as leaders in our effort to make other people feel safe, sometimes that means we don't talk about accountability, right? And so psychological safety is connected to whether I feel at risk for being blamed. And yet the answer isn't, therefore, we won't talk about whether this went well, and if it did not, why? And so like Amy Cuddy's work around psychological safety in the OR and how quickly do teams learn has everything to do with actually having a common goal, feeling like we are all on the same team supporting and helping each other, and it is our collective responsibility and our responsibility to each other and to the patient to learn as fast as we can, and that means spotting as quickly as we can what we need to be changing or what we need to try next to get closer to the goal. That's actually a really high degree of accountability, but no one person is left feeling like, oh, I'm the one who's going to take the fall or be blamed. So it's that shift from blame to a real sense of joint contribution and service of an agreed upon goal that I think creates the most psychological safety. And the leader can't do that by themselves, right? They've got to invite people into a space where we all actually buy into that idea and our part in it. Two words that come to mind are trust and respect. I think that that's right. So what does it mean to you? to be trusted or respected, and maybe especially in a moment where you feel like you messed something up. What does that mean to you? The next word that just came to mind is vulnerability. Owning it, calling it out, expressing error, taking responsibility for error, and I think not trying to maintain an appearance, not trying to and make believe, oh, the people in charge don't mess up. And when they mess up, they don't not take responsibility for their mess ups. And, you know, Radical Candor, the book comes to mind and sort of that vulnerability. And I think it's become du jour to be vulnerable in leadership, to be vulnerable uh, at work, um, still maintaining some professional, personal boundaries, of course, but um, that's what it means to me. I love what you just described, and particularly maybe two aspects of it. One is, if there's a gap, and there's pretending going on, like we all know the deal, but we're pretending not to see the deal, that creates so little safety, because it's like, is anybody going to point it out? Is anybody going to point it out? Did people notice my part of it? And the second part that feels important to me is that vulnerability maybe is highest when people seem pretending like they're pretending and where if it's named, I'm going to get tagged alone as the problem or the whatever. And it's interesting, owning it, sometimes people are like, well, that's a big risk if you're going to own your part of it. But I actually often feel like, please respect and trust me enough that I know the score, I see it, I see my part in it, and actually give me the respect and trust me enough to let me name it first. And I'm totally willing to name it first. And by the way, I'm expecting that others will too. So I am not in this alone. And that's the question of like, do I trust you trust me and respect me? Do I trust and respect you 
that I know that we're on the same page there and that we're not alone. There's something you just um, touched on that I had read something about your feelings about apologies. Mm -hmm. And that that's sort of one of the biggest ways to sort of, in a way, throw people off and also perhaps engender trust. Mm Mm-hmm. Ooh, I, <laughs> when you just said throw people off, um, it kind of made me laugh. And then the, the thing that jumped into my head was maybe it's more like you're throwing people on or inviting people in. Yeah. You're basically saying, hey, I'm going to go over here where I'm totally willing to be accountable and be straight about the fact that I probably owe you an apology or I feel badly about it. You want to join me over here or should we keep pretending over there? We were speaking about voice and you really um, shared about spoken voice, I'd say, audible voice speaking, and the written voice. Currently, you're uh, working on edition three of one of your written voice products. Uh, Can you update us on that? Yeah, so (laughs) the project, the project that we can't seem to bring to conclusion, because we keep feeling dissatisfied that there's something here we still haven't figured out. So yes, um, so difficult conversations, if we talk about voice, difficult conversations has a very conversational, we're all in it together, we all struggle with these things, we all make these mistakes kind of voice. And, um, and we're working on the third edition right now. We wrote the original book and it came out in 1999, took us seven years. Um, And then we did a 10th anniversary edition in 2010 because we couldn't count apparently, so it was 11 years. (laughs) And and then uh, it's now 2022, and for the last year in fits and starts, we've been working on the third edition. The second edition added 10 questions people ask, and we didn't really touch the text. The third edition, actually, I sat down last fall and I read the whole book from beginning to end for the first time in years. Um, It was a fascinating experience because there were things in there that I had completely forgotten and don't tend to focus on or teach. I was like, oh, actually, that's a very good point. (laughs) I forgot about that one because there's just so much more depth than you really have time to talk about or teach um, in any given moment. Um, There were also things I thought, oh, this is a real gap or we think about this slightly differently now. And so the third edition project has been a much bigger project to take apart the book. We've even talked about whether to reorder the chapters. The topics of the chapters don't change, I don't think, but we've rewritten the blame and contribution chapter and we've rewritten the impact intent chapter more completely and we've talked about whether to flip the order. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm tempted to say I lost that debate, but no. Uh, Doug and Bruce, I think, and and maybe rightly, are worried that if people are working from two different editions, it might get confusing, particularly because a lot of people use it to teach. So we've left them, but I just want all your listeners to know that it's wrong. Um, (laughs) We should have flipped the order. So, um, and then we're rewriting the 10 questions, including getting rid of some questions and adding some questions. And just this past week, um, we've been working on the question about power, like how does power fit into any of this? And the process of writing is often the process of figuring out what you think um, or what you've learned so far. And so it's not just a rewriting process about what we've learned. We're actively learning 
as we're doing it and having to learn as we as we do it. Yeah. Listeners who haven't yet read Difficult Conversations are wondering about the 10 questions. Uh, and I'm wondering, when you read Edition 2, did it feel dated? Uh, are there aspects that you're like, we need to get rid of this and update that? There were a few things that were just sort of funny, like the Jack and Michael story, which opens and closes the book. Um, you know, they're arguing about a brochure. And I said to Doug, like, does, does anybody even know what a brochure is anymore? Um, so there were like funny era specific things like that. Also, you know, what do we have to say about text and social media and Zoom and, um, and the racial divide and the systemic, really troubling systemic issues. Um, so, so definitely we, I went through and marked up my hard copy um, with notes and margins and we need to say more about this and we can get rid of this. The other thing that I notice is that our examples, so our examples are all real examples. They are often usually disguised, which means we've changed people's Names. Names, genders, we've changed their context, but we've we've kept the emotional heart of the story. Um, and for the ones that hit pretty close to home, we've run them by the people that they're about. Others are amalgams a little bit to help them be disguised. So what that means is we're going through and I'm noticing, wow, everybody has a spouse in a heterosexual relationship. There are a lot of conversations about children, but there are no stepchildren or blended families in this book. Like, that's a little nutty. Um, and so I was sort of horrified in many ways of the ways in which who was included and seen and who wasn't, despite the fact that the people they're about often are a much broader set. Um, and so part of what we've done is actually replace some of the examples um, or shift, given that they're disguised already, let's shift the examples so that people see themselves in the book um, more easily. So uh, I'm working on a piece right now with my productivity partner, and we're writing about the different stages in medicine, uh, early stage, mid-career stage, late stage, and there have been some essays written about these stages vis-a-vis -vis women, and the names attributed to each stage, there's Jennifer, Jane, and Janet. Oh, my goodness. And the authors are white. These names are arguably uh, white. And um, my productivity partner and I are working on this because, you know, again, who are we speaking to? Who, you know, are we trying to name a phenomenon that is applicable to everybody and everybody's experience? Can we be better? Yeah, we can be better. And this circles back to your, like, I'm still on my journey totally still on my journey. And and when we submitted the manuscript back in 1998 for the 99 publication, um, there were folks at the publisher. We had included actually quite global names and often names of people that we knew that we borrowed, right? So my, my family's names are in there, you know, as characters, because we use their names as pseudonyms in other characters. And so my sister's like, because she and her husband, Jason, we use their names in an argument about dishes. She's like, everybody I know thinks we fight about the dishes. That's just not, that's not our particular fight. But anyway, we had global names and our publisher at the time was like, who has names like this? And we we're like, what world are you living in? Now we look at the names and we're like, oh, okay, we can see what's left out, et cetera. And then we had a funny conversation the other day 
because we have a conversation between two partners and the two names are Monisha and Harpreet. And Doug said, you know, we really should have, we need to have couples who are, you know, the, the same maybe racial identity. We have a lot that are crossover. And I said, well, Manish and Harpreet are, like in my mind. And like he was picturing someone totally different. So it's also like, what is the valence of a name for you as you picture it? It has been a funny conversation as we talk about like, who are you imagining that this is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I appreciate that you asked me about psychological safety. And, you know, I related a lot to the book on difficult conversations. And I think one of our earliest connections, I spoke to you about what I've seen in medicine is people in leadership actually often, in my experience, avoid difficult conversations. They either don't have them or they try to hand them off. And I've been the recipient of hard, difficult conversations that people have tried to hand off. So as audience members are getting initiated to the concept of difficult conversations, why they're important to have, how to have them, what would you say about this human nature bent to avoiding and or handing off? Hmm. Well, part of the, um, do you want to name names? (laughs) Um, Part, part of the difficulty of doing the calculus of like, Am I going to avoid this conversation or should I try to have it? Um, is that what's really clear in the math in my head is like the short term risks if I try to have it and it goes badly. And, you know, they're kind of difficult anyway. So, should this, is this even going to be worth the effort? But what's less visible um, is the longer term costs of avoiding it. And what's also less visible is that how I have it changes the risk calculation. Like they're more likely to have a positive reaction or we're more likely to move it in a positive direction if I am actually more open and curious in the conversation as well as being clear about the ways in which I see it differently. And then that leads us to a place where the other thing we need to put on the balance sheet is what are the possible benefits that if I don't have it, I miss out on. And um, so I'm, that makes me curious about what you think, the people who are handing off those conversations to you, what do you think they're worried about? Why are they handing them off? So this is sort of a follow-up to my question um, that I was anticipating posing. I've seen leaders avoid conversations when there's not gender concordance, that there's fear that she's going to cry. There's f- Oh, my goodness. <laughs> there's fear that she's going to cry. There's fear that he's going to be accused of being sexist or misogynistic or a bully. And so what they're afraid of is that they're going to hurt someone else and that they're going to be misunderstood. Their good intentions will be misunderstood. Yeah. I've seen leaders avoid conversations when there's lack of racial concordance. Yeah. Fear of um, something being brought to HR. Mm-hmm. Fear of being accused of being racist. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Which hits at the core of identity for many of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And who we are. Yeah. And how, who we want to be versus perhaps who we are. And so what advice would you give them? Well, so this relates to another question I had on my list of questions for Sheila Heen. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> Are you remembering that I'm a lawyer and I'm watching you dodge the question? <laughs> I wonder if there's a difference with uh, knowing that it's not binary, but if we consider men and we consider women, I have wondered if you have in the research you've read, you've quoted, or you've conducted, is there a difference between the way men handle and are willing to engage in difficult conversations versus women? I don't know that I can say with confidence that there is a generalizable enough trend. Um, you know, there's some research that women tend to be more quickly trusted, that they're being honest or candid or straight with you. Um I've read research that suggests that men are more willing to jump in and try something even though they don't know what they're doing, whereas women, <laughs> and it's obvious to everyone, um, and women wait until they feel they have full mastery, right? There's lots of research about that. And that'll be related to difficult conversations. Um, but I don't know that I can say that there's a big gender gap. I think that your observation about it feeling binary to us. Like, I have to be sure that I'm right. And this is not racist, or sexist. And that I can say it all perfectly and not get myself in trouble with HR or anyone else. And that they're not mad at me at the end. Like, that's an impossible set of standards. And I think if you negotiate yourself into a more realistic place, a place that reflects reality, it may be that your stance is, I want to talk to you about this because I think that there's something important for us to understand and address. I am worried that maybe there is some bias here for me. I don't think so, but I can't say for sure. So if we want to have that part of the conversation, let's have it. Um, if you see something that I don't, please do let me know. I would need your help with that. And it doesn't erase the fact that we have a dilemma, so what should we do about that? And if you can be more open to the not needing to have it all figured out and be right, you're more likely to have a better conversation that aligns with reality and invites the other person into a role that, that they actually want to be in mm -hmm. with you in figuring it out. That said, by the way, I do think that there are situations where you might say, I am not the very best person to have the conversation with this person, either because um, somebody else has a stronger relationship with them or because if it comes from me, it's going to feel like a huge deal. It's not a huge deal. So is this a conversation that is better had by fill in the blank because they can explore without the person feeling called out or put on the spot or whatever. And so I do think there are reasons why you might hand something off, but not because you're afraid of it. How would you counsel someone that wants to have a difficult conversation and also wants to have it witnessed or feels there needs to be a third party in the room? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, say more. Well, just again, um, so I, I'm not going to dodge your question. I'm going to circle back to it that... Medicine mm -hmm. is Absolutely. hierarchical, and it is still um, white male dominated in terms of leadership, in terms of decision makings, in terms of power. And I think that, um, so number one, 
Um, I've seen these difficult conversations avoided. I've seen that perhaps they have not been developed as leaders to have an emotionally intelligent conversation like you just suggested. So there's so many assumptions and potential expectations of the person conducting the difficult conversation that I think there's a lot of avoidance because people aren't there. And, you know, if you hurry up and don't talk about it, then you don't talk about it and goes away. Like, I think, you know, so much has been shrouded in healthcare and in medicine that thankfully has been revealed as people write books, as people put it out on social media and articles, or the reality of the healthcare system and medicine is much more visible uh, because of the pandemic, mm -hmm. you know, because of George Floyd, because of the reckoning that, quite honestly, this has been going on 200 years. So um, that being said, in my experience, these difficult conversations are not held at all. And yet, I believe in them. And the people that I've seen conduct them better, best, are generally the women, the few women that do get to leadership. Yeah. I do uh, actually think that there is a privilege that we carry as women, that it's less likely that someone's going to levy a sexist accusation at us. I have heard some of my colleagues of color say they're aware that they have a privilege, that they can raise issues and not be as vulnerable to accusation and to invite a real and candid conversation. Um, I would also say that then that sometimes results in, well, then you guys need to fix the problem. Mm -hmm. The tax. Yeah. And that, of course, is deeply unfair. So, I mean, we started this little piece with the question of the role of third parties or having someone be there. And, and I think there are an array of roles that you might, um, or reasons which result in roles that you might want someone to join a conversation. So this circles back to the question you asked about, gosh, should I have a third party in the room? And I think that there are a number of, of really valid and important reasons you might want a third party in the room or a third or fourth party in the room that then lead to very different roles for that party. So one might be just as support. So first of all, in a really important emotional conversation, the adrenaline is so high that it's really hard to track what's going on. So for instance, I went with my dad to his appointment to talk about his Alzheimer's. And it's not just that he he's tracking pretty well, but in any conversation about a diagnosis and possible, you know, implications, etc. I walked out remembering more than he remembered. And with two of us, we can compare notes and ask good questions, etc. So some of it is as support for somebody or or I have a friend who has recently gone through a divorce. And like, in the mediation, I would sit off camera just to support her to help her feel grounded and less reactive. That's one kind of third party you might have. Another is someone who might be there just to help us hear each other or help us remember what was actually said because we're each gonna walk away remembering different parts of it and then our chronology gets mixed up and we walk away remembering how we felt more than the details of what actually happened and who said what. 
and then you feel vulnerable, like someone's going to accuse me of saying something that I'm pretty sure I didn't say. So, so having somebody there to help us hear each other and also to be a little bit more of an impartial witness to what did happen or who might make the other person feel safer. All of those are good reasons to have someone in the room. And of course, you're also thinking about, will somebody feel ganged up upon? Is this going to help us move forward or not? Should, should I ask if they want to have someone come along? Um, all of those, I think, are questions that don't have enough play, in the particularly when we're trying to change systems and surface things that are chronic. The Risa Wrap-Up. Well, audience, this is part one of my two-part conversation with Sheila Heen. And what a joy it was to meet with her in Boston and record this conversation. Upon reflection, specifically on difficult conversations, I have to say that Sheila's sharing of the organization of the book and how they came to it and how it's been useful uh, for her clients, for her students, for herself, makes a lot of sense. I do think that there is this element of trust, accountability, and psychological safety that is required when people sit to have these difficult conversations. Moreover, and I want to use the word moreover, I think more of us should be having these difficult conversations. That's it for this week, audience. See you next week where we have part two of this conversation with Sheila Heen. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare equity and current trends. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. You can listen on whatever platform you subscribe to podcasts. Our team includes Stacey Gitlin and Dr. Giuliano DePorto. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please contact me, Risa at thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm on Twitter at Risa E. Lewis. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.